This is the really neat concept that's been uh, just recently um, that I've started to understand this idea of heaven and earth overlapping. And, um, and that's what the purpose of a temple you is. Know, and so God wanted to make sure they understood you can't come into my presence if you're dirty. So they had all these, all these processes, this sanctification, you know, of washings and oil splashed on them. And I mean, not oil, but, um, uh, blood had to be splashed on them at different times. And they'd go through all these different ceremonial things that seem kind of silly to us, but they were to make, they were so that the people understood that they needed to take this seriously. We're trying to take God on faith. You, right. We don't have a place to go where uh, our, our minister goes in and, and we see fire from heaven and we know that that's God. And that's so that's really an interesting shift, I think. You, when you show up to church and you see God, you know, a flame of fire over the church, you know, you know he's there, you know, and, and, he, and he's told you exactly what to do. And when you didn't do it, you see people get consumed because they didn't do it. I mean, it's really clear. Just do what he says. Welcome back to Restored Gospel Podcast. We're two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. And uh, we might have to drop that tagline because this isn't going to be as casual as usual. We've got a presentation I've been looking forward to. We're going to spend some weeks talking about temples. Uh, temples, Shane, to me in the Old Testament, uh, I talk about the tabernacle and this Holy of Holies and this traveling tent and the Ark of the Covenant and all of these things that were always kind of a mystery. And I'd hear bits and pieces of them here and there, but never really understood in depth um, the mystery surrounding the temple and how they came to be. So I know that's where we're headed. Um, tabernacle, the tabernacle, temples, and then... LDS culture and how temples were brought back into Christianity in the 1830s in the restoration. And are they a thing? Should they be a thing? Were they a thing? What was their purpose? How you doing? Yeah, good, good. How about you? Good. Yeah. Growing up in the, in the RLDS and you know, the sort of the LDS culture, um, it, temples are just sort of just kind of part of life. You know, I mean, temples were, part of our doctrine basically. And, um, you know, I remember the, the trips as a young, young person to Kirtland, Ohio with the youth groups and, you know, and that it was just regarded as sacred ground, you know, and, um, didn't learn a lot about Nauvoo or, or, you know, some of the other places that we've designated as temples, but the temple lot, of course, and independence was always a, a sacred place, you know, would make a, um, would go there and pray sometimes. And, uh, I know, when we've had my wife, wife and I had some huge blessings in our family, we'd gone up there to pray and thank the Lord. And, you know, and I mean, I, I don't know if the place necessarily was the significance or if it was rather just our own perception of the place. And that's what made us prepare for it and come, come into it with more of a, you know, a, a sort of a, um, I don't know, kind of a, more of an attitude of, of worship than you might in just a regular church. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I think live. Tim, go ahead. Go ahead. 
uh, just just the temples of just temples and the idea of temples, future temples, all that sort of thing has just sort of been has permeated our our culture and in, in the church. And um, when you do a deep study on it, it, it cha- kind of changes the picture. And I think that's kind of where we're going with this. Yeah, I live where I live today because of the temple lot in Independence, Missouri. When I when I moved here from Ohio, I wanted to be as close as I could to that piece of land uh, because of the historical significance in our culture. Of course, we we have Revelation where Joseph Smith designated a spot of land uh, for a temple in Zion, um, and so that's that's what the temple lot is. Yeah, two two blocks away. Uh, yeah, and I spent many hours there with friends. Uh, and prayers and just fellowship. It's where I proposed to my wife on the temple lot, me and like probably thousands of other young restoration men <laughs> probably went there <laughs> to do the same thing. But uh, so before we talk about the temples and, and LDS culture, we're going to step back and look at the history of temples and what they really are. And my, my understanding has changed along with um, other resources like the Bible project, which we're going to start with a clip here. Uh, just to open up our thought process. But I think where we're heading and the most exciting thing for me, Shane, is God's purpose for us and his relationship with us and how the temples foreshadow and point to that ultimate relationship that he wants to have with us uh, after the atonement and after the veil was rent in the temple. And the scriptures really uh, paint a, a, a neat story of how how Jesus wants to be interacting with us. And that's where we're headed. And that's the exciting part. And also it's kind of the rub where, you know, has our culture, you know, taking the focus off of that relationship um, into maybe a building or a place. So that's, uh, that's where we're headed, but let's, uh, let's play a video here. Just, I'm just going to play a, a part of this video, just a couple minutes and then we'll dive in. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, But here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So, think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So, we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about 
temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. All right. Mute button's off. So, this is the really neat concept that's been uh, just recently um, that I've started to understand. This idea of heaven and earth overlapping. And... um, and that's what the purpose of a temple is. And so as when we get to the end of our our study, we're going to find out how that relates to us in heaven and earth as far as heaven overlapping with us as the temple. Um, and that's that's exciting to me. But that space, Shane, that that idea of temple goes all the way back to the Garden of, of Eden, right? Uh, where God dwelt with uh, Adam and Eve and... Um, before we get to the PowerPoint, I do, this is just a copy off the Bible project. You see this correlation between the temple and the Garden of Eden. You got the the dry land and the land of Israel, the courtyard, the holy place, and then the Holy of Holies. And if you look at the Garden of Eden, there was this dry land, the land of Eden. Within the land of Eden, there was the Garden of Eden. And within the Garden of Eden was that tree of life. And I think we can we can even talk about or, or think about the Book of Mormon and the Tree of Life, that Holy of Holies, right? That fruit that's the, the ultimate fruit, the presence of God, the love of God. So I uh, won't say too much about the Garden of Eden right now, but that's interesting to think about Eden as, the, as a temple and God dwelling with man there. And that's really what we're to get back to. Um, I know we think life is about, I, I got to get to heaven, right? Be good so I can go to heaven and be with God. But as the Bible project has pointed out, it's it's about God dwelling here with us. And even now, right. not right. not something later on. Yeah, we, uh, we tend to love to think of places rather than conditions. You know, we like, for example, Zion, you know, we always talk about where it's going to be and when it's going to be and sort of the physical aspects of this idea of the new Jerusalem. But yet what really it is, is it's a spiritual condition inside of you. You know, now that doesn't mean it's not going to, you know, things aren't going to happen in certain geographies and all that. But the focus of this, of everything should be on our spiritual condition. And I think the temple is much the same way. And I think Israel, you know, and I won't won't get too far ahead, but Israel is never understood that you know they uh, they thought of it as the place and they just didn't understand that it's about a, it's it's a relationship that god wants to be one with man right so in the very beginning of genesis with, without going too much into it we'll see how god there, there's imagery there and, and there's a setting up and um, this idea of a temple god man living together the whole earth is god's temple and his presence is there that whole earth for for, for lack is like the holy of holies at that time. That's where God dwells with man. Heaven and earth were were um, overlapping, and once once man was kicked out of the garden, that overlapping was separated. So it's interesting. It's like this heaven and earth. Is it here? Is it in heaven? Is it? It's its own unique place. This 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 dimension where heaven and earth overlap. Uh, like obviously we can't go and find the garden of Eden right now. Um, but there's times in history and in the scriptures where this heaven and earth come and overlap one another. And it's this, almost this other dimensional existence. And it's, it's this place that we're heading back to that we want to head back to. Right. The the scriptures tell us that we see through the veil darkly, you know, and that, that one day it will be face to face. 
And so I think this, there is this veil over us. I mean, we might have people all around us from, you know, as far as spiritually speaking, Zion, we might be in Zion and right now and not realize, you know, the, the, as far as in the presence of angels and that sort of thing, but we just don't realize because we have this veil of darkness that blinds our minds, blinds right. our eyes. Um, like one thing, Star Trek episode right now. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, what I love about like the bio project does some awesome stuff when it comes to uh, temples and all this kind of thing about heaven and earth, the kingdom of God. Um, but one thing that they don't have is they don't have the book of Mormon. And it's really exciting to see the book of Mormon so strongly confirm what they're saying. I mean, it's, right. it's not when you, when you listen to what they're talking about, it's, you almost wonder, do they have the book of Mormon? I mean, how are they, how are they understanding this? You know, I know that God is, is enlightening them because they're, they're speaking right along the lines with the book of Mormon right. says and, well, they're at, they, they have doctorates in um, you know, at least one of them, Tim Tim Mackey, is you know doctorate in, in Hebrew and theology. So they it's their life's work, and they come right. across these uh, through study of Hebrew and culture. They come to the truths that are contained in the Book of Mormon. Uh, but the average layperson, the average person like you and me, don't have the advantage, nor do I have the skill set to be able to do that. So that because there's men like that, that then. Uh, dumb it down for for us to help us understand it is pretty neat but the cool thing is that the book of mormon is the is the book that you don't have to have that doctorate degree um, to understand what god's trying to get across so that's that's the cool thing but it's always neat when when it's laid out in the bible and you see the connections that it just validity you know solidifies book of mormon being divine so let's bring up your powerpoint here and um and take us take us through this, Shane. Well, so to kind of start off, um, you know, uh, the word the word temple uh, didn't even exist in Hebrew. They they had they called it the house of the Lord. Um, so it was never called a temple in 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 their language. Um, the tabernacle was the first the first you know version of the temple, basically, which basically was just a mobile temple that they could take down and, and move. Um, so moving on to this slide here, this heaven and earth. So kind of like what they were saying, you know, you have these two realms. Well, the Book of Mormon really makes this clear um, in that it explains that there was a great separation that happened between God and man. Once once Adam and Eve partook in the garden, they were now separated from from God. And and it, it's this it's if you look at if you read the um, the vision of Lehi and Nephi, it, they're separated by justice. The, the great the great distance between the great and spacious building, which was the world or earth, and the tree of life, which you know was heaven, um, was dis, was this great expanse, this great distance was justice, the justice of God. And so, um, you know, and that's that brings a whole kind of a whole new understanding to the what's you know what's expressed in the Bible in terms of understanding the fall of man. Um, and it is this justice that separates us from God. And the only way to get back to God is through his mercy and through a price that had to be paid to pay for that cost of justice. And the only one that could pay that price was God himself. And so there we go back to this idea that God took upon him flesh, as it says in Mosiah, and came to earth and, and, and died on the cross for our sins. God himself paid that price so that we could cross that great expanse back into heaven. And and uh, and so so really the perfect temple is Jesus. Um, 
and then we have we have temples that God gave us in terms of the tabernacle and all that, which we'll go through. Um, but just kind of understanding that idea that the, it's a place where these two realms are able to be to coexist in the same space. Um, so First Nephi three thirty four to thirty five says, "Wherefore, if ye have sought to do wickedly in the days of your probation, then ye are found unclean before the judgment seat of God." And no unclean thing can dwell with God. Wherefore, you must be cast off forever. So there is no, there is nothing that will allow us to be in God's presence, um, at least when it comes to God's justice, uh, if it was not for this price that he paid for us. You think so of we, uh, Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden, you know, exiting t- towards the east and the cherubim coming in there and uh, not allowing them to go back in. Um and I, I like as we go through the study to try to think about um, the characters and how they are not looking back at history and learning about temples. They're living it for the first time and trying to think what is the message God's trying to get across to his people. You know, what what a terrible thing to uh, to be in the presence of an almighty God and then and then be shushed away and taken out of his presence. Right. I mean, we're kind of born out of his presence. Um, but for them, that hadn't been something. Yeah. And, you know, when you when you look at the Bible and the original, you know, at the beginning with Adam and the, the different prophets through time, um, you know, they they had a relationship with God that that was it seemed more personal. You know, he would come to them, he would speak to them. They, they would you know, they would understand. They would respond. They would obey, um, you know, Abraham, the covenant he made with Abraham and all that. But when they, when Joseph went into Egypt, Joseph, the cut of many colors, uh, got, went into Egypt, um, that started Israel on a new path. Um, one that appeared to be successful and great. And it was at first until those, those first generations died away. And now Israelites were seen as a, as a problem. And so they went into slavery and those, they spent 400 years in slavery in to, to the pharaohs and to in Egypt, and that really made a that really changed Israel. Their heart hardened. They began to get more involved in idolatry, and they they adopted the customs and the cultures of the, of Egypt. Um, they, you know, Egypt had over 2,000 deities that they worshipped um, besides the pharaohs themselves. You know, the pharaoh most of the pharaohs said they were gods also, um, but. They were a very much an idolatrous society, and Egypt, or I mean, Israel was right there in the heart of all that. And so, when it was time to free them, to bring them out of Egypt, got you know they weren't ready. I mean, they just weren't ready. They <clears throat> they were fearful, they were superstitious. Um, they it was natural for them to have a, a deity that they could hold in their hands or, or look up at a you know at a big statue, and that's God. It was not natural for them just to pray and look into the sky or just have be in open space and communicate with with the God of heaven. And uh, and so when they when they because of this 400 year, if you think about that 400 years and we kind of read past it, we don't really think about it. But, you know, this country's only been around a few hundred years. You know, if you think about 400 years of being in this idolatrous society where God just wasn't there. I mean, their hardness of hearts. God kind of withdrew his spirit and they just engaged in Egypt's culture and idolatry. And, and they were a lower class citizen as well, you know, so they had all the, they had all the um, um, kind of traumatic uh, psychological problem with being a, a, a minority and being a, you know, a weak 
downtrodden society. And so, so now, now Moses comes along and he's going to free Israel and they just, they just weren't ready to worship God the way he wanted to be worshiped. Well, yeah, it goes back to Abraham uh, being called out of the land of his father by this God that's, that speaks to him away from the idols and the, the stone statues and the wood statues to this living God. And then uh, as the repetition of man, you know, Israel, there's this, this nation that rises up and then they become corrupt, go into slavery. And then once again, it, it, God has to step in and say, I need to reveal to you who I am, who I am um, and show my nature to you um, after he, after Moses takes him out. So yeah, it's, it's a repetitive pattern. Right. <clears throat> and Israel, um, they were used to like all these gods like Ra and Hathor and Osiris and Anubis and all these gods, they were represented by human bodies on statues. Um, but the heads were like animals, you know, they had like the animal, like, you know, like a right. hawk or, or, or a bull or whatever. And so, <clears throat> You know, a lot of people think that when when they made the golden calf, uh, while you know Moses was up on the mount, he's receiving the law. He's been gone for forty days, you know, which is a long time if you're sitting at the bottom of a mountain waiting for some answers. You know, forty days is a long time to sit there and wait. You know, and so God had been gone for forty days, and so Israel, they wanted to move on. They made a lot of people made assumptions that he he's not coming back. He you know the the mountain was on fire and they had smoke and you know it was scary and they. Made, probably made the assumption that God was was gone, you know. Um, yeah, so this slide here, it, this is out of Exodus 20. This is where it's talking about how the people were there um, at Mount Sinai, <clears throat> and God was inviting them to 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 be a part of of his of his life, to become one with him. So it says, and all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. And when they saw, when the people saw it, they were moved and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, speak thou with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. So Israel was afraid. They, they weren't used to gods that, that were up on top of mountains with, you know, explosions of lightning and, and big clouds and fire and flame and the ground shaking and earthquakes and all these things. They weren't, they weren't used to that. They were used to staring at a statue that a lifeless statue that has no power to do anything and, and, and pray. And that's what they'd been doing for 400 years. So now you have this God who you can see is evidently alive and, and is scary and big and powerful. And, and they were like, we don't want to go up on that mountain. We're, you know, no, thank you. It's, this is too much. Um, but they said, Moses, you go ahead and go. We'll, we'll just do what you tell us to do. Yeah. This is the beginning of a, a precedent that uh, perhaps wasn't what God intended but allowed to happen due to their their choice um but it this idea of uh this inner intermediary or intercessor this this one that's going to go in between them and god and be the spokesman and the uh, the in-between that that's that sets a precedent for uh what's about to happen right with temple right yeah, and, and it says in the verse 20 there, and Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you that and that his fear may be before your faces that you sin not. You know, and so he's telling them, Don't be afraid. He, he you know, he's he's here to to bring you into his presence. He's here to prepare you to meet him. Don't be don't be afraid. And but the people were just like, No, I don't think so. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew off. near, drew near yeah. under the thick darkness. Yeah. So 
they basically just told God, we're not interested. You know, we'll, we'll obey your commandments. We'll do what Moses says. We'll, we'll give you that, but we're not coming up in your presence. And that seems really hard for us to imagine. Here's God inviting you to come to be with him. And you know, he, we know through our study and through our lives that he, he loves us. He's not going to say, come and come and visit me. And then get, and then we're going to get destroyed, you know, but they just didn't have that understanding. They weren't there. They didn't have the the background that, you know, that we have as far as all the scriptures and everything we have for precedence. And so they just, because of their, their superstition, they're like, no, no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so so <clears throat> I don't know how far your notes go in depth on, on um, Moses and this whole process. It's several chapters in, in the Bible um, in Exodus where he goes up and down the mountain. Um, do you have, do you have information on that or just a more of a, um, I've done, I've done some study on it. I don't know that I've got a lot to, to give you right now. Okay. Um, just, you know, basically, um, it, you know, Moses made a couple different trips up and down. Um, the, the men were the men. I read something the other day that the men actually saw God, uh, the, the, the men that he had selected of Aaron's sons came and, and they ate with God and they, and they saw him and they heard his voice, but, they, they just couldn't cross a threshold. And I don't know if they saw God, meaning that he, they saw the fire and, and all that. I don't know if that's what that was referring to, but um, <clears throat> they there was no doubt. There was no one in Israel that could say that God wasn't there. I mean, he was. it was about as big of an explosive situation as you could make with thunder and lightning right. and fire and smoke and the whole mountain shaking. I mean, that's not something you can, you can just, <laughs> you know, um, brush off. I don't have it at my fingertips, but I, I've listened to several uh, videos and podcasts from the Bible Project, and this this um, this experience on the mountain with Moses and then the seventy elders, uh, and and this this cloud that covers the mountain, and then above the above this cloud, you can see through it to this holiest place. Uh, that there's a lot of imagery here that actually uh, is referring or is showing. Uh, the literature showing this idea of a temple and the mm-hmm. Holy of Holies and that this experience on the mountain then will, will move into a tabernacle, a physical um, item that the Israelites are then going to have with them. That's going to be the center of their entire lives from now on. Right. Yeah. So, so, so everything that, that he did on the mountain, he, he did in the, in the, in the tabernacle, basically, like you said, it was a representation. It was a representation of the of the Garden of Eden as well. There's so much symbolism there. I mean, we could take years going through all the symbolism. Yeah. Um, well, you've got a um, yeah, this is kind of a, a synopsis as we go through all of this. Yeah, we could hang out at any one of these places for for many weeks, but uh, I like what you have here. So so Moses has this experience on the on the mountain. The people didn't want to go. Uh, any closer to the mountain, um, you know, there's all kinds of things. It, it was, you know, he he asked the people to take three days to prepare themselves. And, um, and Moses ends up being the go-between and the Lord gives him instruction then moving forward that you're going to have this tabernacle. So this is a new a new concept for the very first time that people are going to learn about learn about this, right? This, this is it. Right. This is the first time. And this is the right. basis for you know, temples even going then through the whole scripture. Yeah. And just as a side note, I think it's important that we mention too, and we've kind of gone over this before, as far as prophets goes, 
Moses was not not picked by God to be their go-between. The people picked him. The people want, I mean, God, God chose Moses to help free Israel from, from bondage. But in terms of being their mediator to go to God on their behalf, that was the people that chose Moses for that. You know, and I think that's that's important. God didn't want that. God wanted God invited all of Israel to come up on the mountain to be with him, to commune with him. And they were and they refused. And so we can't use we can't use Moses and say, well, we need to have a, a single one man prophet because Moses did that. And that's the, that's the pattern. That really isn't the pattern God intended. Um, he, he desires that all. In fact, that one happened, you know, that experience where um, those guys were prophesying and, you know, Moses made the statement. He said, God would that all men be prophet, that all of us be prophets. You know, oh, yeah. So, the, the tattletales. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the ones right. That came to Moses. Moses, Moses, they're all prophesying. And Moses was <laughs> was pretty chill about it. Okay, good. Right. Am <laughs> I supposed to be jealous? But... I could have to babysit all of you people. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Right. And so that's a that's just an interesting little side note of a pattern there. But um but yeah, so the tabernacle was was really specific and, and it almost seems like it almost seems mean. I mean, the way the things that they had to do to prepare that thing. I mean, you think about it. They've been in bondage for 400 years. They've finally gotten freed. They're out in the desert. They've taken whatever they can carry out of Egypt. And then God gives them these very specific things that they have to produce to make this, this tabernacle. And, and I'll read that there for the online, for the uh, podcast listeners. Uh, This is out of Exodus 25, starting in verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they may bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly. With his heart ye shall take my offering. And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass. So notice that it it says that they were to give it willingly. So it wasn't something God forced them to do. But they they wanted him to give from from their heart. And then here's what God wanted. He wanted gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen. So all these different colors of linen, uh, some with goat's hair, uh, ram skin dyed red, and badger skin, which, uh, interesting side note there, badger skin um, is actually, they don't know what that was. The the Hebrew word there did not have an interpretation into modern languages. Um, They weren't sure what it was. And so uh, some of the versions of the Bible actually call it porpoise skin. Which you know, kind of an interesting right. thing to—I don't know how you skin a porpoise, but anyway, um, most most versions uh, use badger skin, um, and then it says and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So he's basically telling them get all these raw materials and bring them to uh, you know a, as a sacrifice, bring them willingly. And then I'm going to tell you what to do. Yeah, the the ox stones, as far as Bible literature goes, is is only mentioned in two ways. And one is in reference uh, in the Garden of Eden, and the other is always in in reference to the the temple or the ephod. And that's a uh, that's an interesting little piece of biblical literature that the Bible Project guys pointed out, and more of the pattern of the two, the garden and the temple. Yeah, yeah. If you look at that list of, of things that are there. Think about all the colors that would have been seen. I mean, you got blue and purple and scarlet and you got goat skins and ram skins and badger skins and different kinds of wood. And, 
you know, got smoke going and, you know, different smells. Uh, you got all these jewels, you know, they're going to be in the off in the, the ephod, ephod and the onyx stone. I mean, you got all these things that visually are like the colors of the rainbow. I mean, this is not just like a, a boring, you know, gray church. I mean, this is like full of all this colorful stuff. And, and I, you think about the Garden of Eden, what it would have been like, you know, think about all the plants and the animals that have gone extinct uh, it, over time. You know, it would have been full of just crazy different foliage with colors. And, you know, and I think that the Lord was representing that to them, uh, this beautiful, colorful, bright place where he was going to dwell. Yeah, those those colors, you know, purple and blue and fine linen, that's not just found in nature. That, that would, would have taken a lot of effort to try to get those colors and dyes to, <clears throat> to come out and even to weave different, different threads together to get the, to get the colors. Um, so uh, there were, yeah, almost mean it, that's, it's quite a, a chore before them. Right. <clears throat> right. I mean, think about just one item. I mean, if God, if God came to you in a dream and said, okay, Mike, I need you to get some Ram skin and dye it red, you know, well, okay. I got to find a Ram. First of all, I got to buy it. I got to slaughter it. I got to skin it. I got to, you know, tan the hide. I've got to dye it. I mean, just one of those is mm-hmm. a big process, you know, or go find some onyx stones. Well, I don't know where to find onyx stones, you know, like Google it, you know, try to figure out where they, where they're found. Maybe I can go buy them at a, you know, I don't know, rock right. place or something. So, I mean, these were all, these were big, these were a big task for people that are living out in the desert that have been in slavery. Well, and so I think, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was just gonna say, I think God, he, he wanted to make sure that they realized that they had a part in this. If they wanted to live in his presence, they had to prepare. They had to make sacrifices. It, it wasn't just going to be God that does all the sacrificing. Um, they had to do their part. And that's, that's important. I, mean. I think that's yeah. really important thing um, was the preparation. Like what this is teaching them that there's <laughs> there's a lot of preparation it, it, for them, you know, and how that will relate to the spiritual side later on. Yeah, absolutely. So what kind of things? Oh, let me go back one more. We're, I don't know if you let me back up one. This uh this kind of looks like the you've got the the holy of holies, the most holy place, and then you've got the the you've got an altar in the temple for burnt offerings. You've got the laver of brass. Is that what has the uh was that with the twelve oxen that held yeah. that? Yeah, that that was where they did all their washings. Mm-hmm. Um Every they had to use that all the time because every time they did a sacrifice, they had to completely wash the altar and start over. It wasn't like you just pile on new stuff on top of the old stuff. You had to start clean, and the their garments had to be washed. Um, every and they, and they did a, they did these sacrifices every single day, seven days of the week. I mean, it just it's an overwhelming task of thinking about the carnage that went that took place in a temple. Can you imagine the priest, the, the, the constant slaughtering and killing and then the cleaning? <laughs> right. Yeah. Man, I, mean, I cook a meal in the kitchen. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I don't want to clean up right now. I'm tired. <laughs> right. These guys are, are just, you know, the blood and like you said, the carnage and then the cleaning and washing their garments to start clean. Uh, just beyond understanding. Um, but that, that laver of brass in the middle there with the 12 oxen, is important because that's going to make its head later in um, LDS culture. And so yeah. we'll just hang on to that for, for now. Yeah. All right. Let's well, uh, go ahead. Also, uh, just, just, just as a quick side note, every single one of the things that are in this temple 
are representations of Christ. They're all pointing to Christ. So the laver of brass, you know, has to do with the washing of sin, the washing of filth. Um, the the altar is where you take a, a spotless lamb and you sacrifice him. That blood pays the price for your sin. That was Jesus. You know, the candlestick, uh, the menorah. You know, that was the the representative of the tree of life, and which was you know, which is Christ, the love of God. Um, the bread, the table of showbread. The the bre- Christ is the bread of life. You know, he was telling them when he was in Jerusalem that all these elements were pointing to him. It's pretty fascinating as you as you dig in deeper on it. What um looking at the I'm looking at the pictures here. What was this uh this Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim within the temple? God God wanted to um that was one of the first things that that really has the most one of the most significant things here. What is that? Yeah, so they were <clears throat> the first thing that they were. They basically constructed the tabernacle from the inside out. Uh, the first thing they were told to make was that was the ark, and it was it was a box made of shittim wood, uh, overlaid with gold. Um, it had have certain had had cherubims up on top, two angels facing each other. Basically, uh, it had a flat place on it called the mercy seat. Um, one time per year. The high priest, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and he could only go in there once per year. So this wasn't where the sacrifices were taking place. This was inside the Holy of Holies where God's presence was. And inside that box, they had the Ark of the Covenant. Later on, they had uh, some manna in there as well as Aaron's rod. Uh, but in the beginning, it was just the Ark of the Covenant. Let's, um, let's, uh, I'm going to stop you right there. This Ark of the Covenant, that's that's... Let's think about that word for a minute, the covenant. Up in the mountain, the, this experience on the mountain, um, it was was God making a covenant with the people. There's a lot of symbolism there between the mar- a marriage. Um, God, mm-hmm. was, God was making a covenant with his people. I will be your God. And the people said, we, we agree to this. We will be your, your people, and we will keep these, these uh, strict commandments. And we are bound together as as a bride and the bridegroom, the church, and the and God, the people being the church, God being the the bridegroom, people being the bride. That that relationship is first um, introduced, I think, here in the in the mountain, and that's for another episode. But just realizing there was a covenant made, almost like a marriage covenant between husband and wife, that we will keep ourselves only for you, God. We will worship no other gods. Right. We will, we will be loyal to you and, and you will be our God and our protector and our guide and our, our source of all of life. Right. Right. Yeah. This covenant that they were entering in with God was, was a lot different than, than, than the covenants that they had 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 with each other in the past or that they had experienced with these, with these false religions, false gods, uh, these um, idolatrous gods, you know, they, those deities didn't provide anything in return. You know, they, they're, they basically, their, their religion required them to make all these sacrifices to these gods, but these gods could do whatever they wanted. Whereas our God, the God of Israel, he specifically promised them things that he would do. And they're beautiful things. I mean, you know, to go before them, to protect them from their enemies, to, you know, they'll live long on the earth if they will be, if they'll honor their father and mother. And, and there's all these things that, that God has promised in his law in the Old Testament law and then in the in the New Testament law, you know, testament means covenant. 
So the Old Testament is the Old Covenant, and New Testament is this New Covenant. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Everything about everything about God from the from the beginning of creation until the end when mankind is is redeemed and judgment occurs, um, it is about the covenant with God. And the covenant is just it really breaking it down to its basic parts is that he says, if you'll do this, if you'll give me a sacrifice in, in the old times, it was a sacrifice of animals and all the other things they had to do in our day. It's a sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. If you'll do that, then I will bring you back into my presence to live with me eternally. That's the covenant. And it's taken a whole bunch of different forms over time, you know, and it fits, they have fit the culture of when it, when they took place you know, this covenant had to be like this because of Israel's idolatry in, e- in Egypt. In our time, it has changed. We're under a new covenant, you know, and so it's a, it's a whole different covenant, but yet it's still the same goal, and that is to bring us back into God's presence. So, uh, the, so the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies, and I, I didn't realize this until, you know, studying, but only one time a year, like you said, would the priest be able to go into that part of the temple one time a year? Um, does that <clears throat> is that does that lend itself to um, just showing how um, holy this covenant was between God and men? Is that is that part of the significance of only once a year? Do you think? Or I think so. I mean, if you're going in there all the time, you just get used to it and become normal. Um, there, mm-hmm. There's plenty of records where when they went when the high priest went in there. They would actually see the cloud, you know, and the light above the above the um, mercy seat, above the ark, you know. So he was like there. You saw him. I mean, he was he was you know, his light and power was there. Um, he also used he also spoke with the high priest, um, you know. So you'd come in there, and God was in that place, and he'd speak to you, and he would, you know. And so God wanted to make sure they understood: you can't come into my presence if you're dirty. So they had all these all these processes. This sanctification, you know, of washings and oil splashed on them. And I mean, not oil, but um, uh, blood had to be splashed on them at different times. And they had to go through all these different ceremonial things that seem kind of silly to us, but they were to make, they were so that the people understood that they needed to take this seriously, you know, and when they failed it, they, they, they gave their life up when they failed. It wasn't like a slap on the wrist, you know? And so yeah, we, we mentioned briefly <clears throat> as this temple, was built uh, some of the early, early on the, the two sons of Aaron um, right off the bat decided they weren't going to quite follow all of the rules and stipulations that, that God has set up um, in, in this, this thing to, to show how holy it is and, and how you have to, you have to go by his way and not by your own way. And, and what happened to them? They, what they, they were killed, right? Right off the bat. Like, yeah. I don't know if it was their first watch, you know, okay, you two priests, you're on today. And then, well, right. too much for them. Well, so they, so God had told them to create a mixture of incense and he, and he actually broke it down into so many parts of this and so many parts of that. It was like this formula that he'd given them. And that's what they were supposed to, to put in their sensors and they would light that, and that smoke would give off a, a very particular uh, smell. And in fact, he told them, he said, don't make this mixture anywhere else. Don't make it in your homes. I mean, if you like the smell, great, but don't make it in your house. This is reserved just for the temple. you know. And so the Bible tells us that, that 
the two sons, Abihu and Nadab, they ended up taking a strange smell. I don't know if they changed the formula or, or, or added something. They thought, oh, this might sound smell good. You know, throw some mint in here or something. You know, I mean, who knows what they were thinking? Drakkar, I know either. Right there, you go. But anyway, they they changed that formula from what God had told them, and that was the reason that they were killed. They they just changed the formula. It was burning differently than what he had said. And it says that God sent fi- fire came from God and immediately consumed them right in front of the people that were there. And um, and then Moses, you know, Moses said, God told you to obey. God said to do it the way I've said. And here you go is what happens, you know, and and it, ma- it makes a statement in there that um, Aaron, it just says that Aaron kept silent. You know, Aaron, his, their, the father, these two boys, right. he just lost his two <clears throat> sons, but he kept silent because he knew, he, he knew that they had, they'd done wrong. Yeah. Well, so the significance of, <clears throat> excuse me, of this temple, um, just a, the significance of this temple, the people knew, like you, we stated earlier with, with our culture today, we, we don't understand you know, idol worship, although there's, there's plenty of idolatry, but this idea of statues and, um, by and large is not, uh, within our culture of, as far as gods, right? You're <laughs> most of the main religions today. Uh, this God is, uh, is up far away, whether it be, you know, Buddhist or Muslims or, or Christians, but these people, they had, had come out of that culture of, of idol worship, object worship, representing gods, even having powers, you know, praying to them for, for crops and weather and blessings. And here, here, this is, this temple is showing the people and and the people know that God is dwelling with us, a living God. Uh, I don't know if, not that he's contained in that little Holy of Holies, but he, you know, heaven comes down and meets and the priest knows, and he experiences God, you know, in his presence annually, the people had no, no way, um, of trying to believe anything other, right? It's, it wasn't where we're today. We're trying to take God on faith. You, right. We don't have a place to go where uh, our, our minister goes in and, and we see fire from heaven and we know that that's God. And that's, so that's really an interesting shift. I think um, that happens uh, later on, but right now there's no denying, is there? Yeah. I mean, you when you show up to church and you see God, you know, a flame of fire over the church, you know, you know He's there, you know, and and he, and He's told you exactly what to do, and when you didn't do it, you see people get consumed because they didn't do it. I mean, it's really clear. Just do what He says. Right. So there's not really the the aspect of faith that we have that we're ex- expected to uh, demonstrate to our God today. It, it's it's different here. But also, look at the look at the bondage when you don't when you're not exercising that faith where, where God's like basically spoon feeding you everything. But look at the bondage you're in. <laughs> look at how much effort you had to put in to interacting with this God, and and so that's a big shift that you don't have to you don't have to question whether there is an, a God. But man, the bondage of the relationship between you and that God is not something I would. I don't want to be a part of that. You know, I do laundry you know, every couple of weeks. I don't want to be washing my clothes every single day and, and cleaning up a, a bloody mess. It, it was quite the, it was quite the relationship of, of bondage and works and 
you know, rigidness, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, as the, as you read it more and you think about the, you know, what it was really like to live like that. I mean, they worked from sun up to sundown seven days a week in the temple. And I mean, it just, it just seems unbelievable that they would have to do that much work just to, to come to God. I mean, what I think we take for granted the fact that we can just go into our bedroom and shut the door and say a prayer, you know, or don't even have to go to your bedroom. You can just say it while you're walking down the street. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we, we just take that for granted that we can come into his presence like that. Um, but they didn't have that luxury. They, they had to follow a strict set of rules because that price hadn't been paid for their, for them yet. Well, next time we're going to, we'll move into priesthood, but I want to, I want to finish up here on, because the priesthood is just as crazy uh, in relation to the temple and everything that they were as extravagant at the priest and everything almost as the temple. But here's mm-hmm. some of those things you were talking about with the significance within the temple. So that lower left picture there, there's the 12 oxen, some, some say re- representing maybe the 12 tribes. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if it says that in the scriptures, but they're facing the four directions. Um, and they have that, that, um, that big uh, container full of water that's used in the washings. Mm -hmm. You said the menorah in the upper right there was this, uh, representing the, you know, the tree of life within the temple back to that garden of Eden imagery. Mm -hmm. Um, you've got this veil, um, this curtain protecting the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is that only the high priest could enter. And that's a huge imagery later on for Jesus when we hear about that being rent and what that right. the beauty in that. I mean, that is the focus of our religion. This, this veil covering the temple or covering the Ark of the Covenant, that being rent is the very, that's the very bedrock of Christianity and the work of Jesus on the cross, his blood and his atonement. And right. what a, what a beautiful, uh, precursor to that um but I, I wanted you to speak on this one in the upper middle here the cherubim what's that where, where have we heard of those before and the, they're these mythical creatures that that appear in the garden of eden to uh, and then and then they're asked to put these on top of the ark right right yeah so cherubim were set at the garden to protect it to, to not let man back in I and mean, it was kind of like it was there they were the gatekeepers and uh, and so that you have that imagery all through the tabernacle. Not only that, not only was it um, set up on the ark itself with the two cherubim facing each other. Um, here they were also told to sew cherubim along all the walls. Um, and then the this picture we have of the curtain up there it actually is not depicting this, but um, there was also cherubim sewn into the the veil. So there was two cherubim on the veil itself, uh, protecting that entrance into the holy of holies. And so, if you think about the art, think about the Garden of Eden. It had those two cherubim that that God placed there to protect entrance in. Right. Um, to and keep, so, it's to keep man out of the the first holy of holies, so to speak. Right. And it's it's merciful because if we if you go if you went trodden right into that holy of holies and you were not prepared, you'd be killed instantly. And same with the Garden of Eden. If you and I tried to go to the Garden of Eden with all of our sins and filth, you know, without accepting the blood of Christ, we would be destroyed. Um, we would be driven out. You know, it was it was merciful for God to protect the Garden of Eden and also to to put that veil around that that ark. Um, well, and then we the, can't we can't dwell in His presence because of our filth. 
And then we're, we're going to tie that in at, at the end. I mean, when you think of you and I at the end of our existence on this earth, it's the same thing. We can't enter into the presence of God without the blood of Christ um, protecting us from being consumed. We, we have to be presented clean as well and spotless or, or we'll be consumed at that time. And the Book of Mormon gives some great imagery on that, wishing that the rocks would just fall on you and you would cease to exist from the knowledge of of that uncleanliness but you have the mercy seat here and what was the priest's job when he went into the holy of holies with the blood yeah well he was a he was a mediator um representing mankind and he took blood from the spotless lamb that he had that he had sacrificed had to be a lamb that did not have any broken legs uh it had to have you know had to be without blemish um and he would sprinkle drops of blood on that mercy seat on behalf of, of the people. And so you have that same, you know, imagery where Christ was the spotless lamb. His legs were not ever broken. Uh, he was pure without sin, without spot or blemish. And his blood was spilled on the cross, you know, which is the, which is the mercy seat. You know, he became the mercy seat. He became all, it's really interesting. All this imagery in the scriptures, everything in the temple is Jesus. It, so he is the mercy seat. He is the lamb. He is the, he, you know, he is the holy of holies. He is the tree of life. He is that menorah. He is the bread of life. He's the showbread. He's the lava that's full of water that we wash ourselves. I mean, everything oh, in the living temple. Water. Yeah. Yeah. Living water. Um, everything in the temple was him. Jesus. Yeah. Neat that he's the holy of holies, his presence, but he's also the sacrifice, right? The lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Right. Well, and even <laughs> even the high priest, even that high priest performing that ordinance on that altar, he is the high priest. Jesus Jesus said he was the high priest. So, you know, that he became the ultimate high priest and took the place of that job. There was no need for a high priest anymore because he was the high priest that, that made that final sacrifice of himself. So it's it's beautiful right. imagery. And he was, and he was the high priest. Well, we're probably getting ahead of ourselves, but yeah, he was the one then that that uh, is was the go between between us and and Father God, right? God the Father in heaven, uh, right. to allow us to enter in for our sins. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, that showbread had that was on the table like all right every every week. They would make enough to last the week. Yeah, and it was always there that bread. And it was 12 pieces divided into two stacks. So it was two stacks of six. And I, I believe it represented the 12 tribes of Israel, that God was the, the bread of life for his people. Wow. All right. Well, we're, we're just skimming the surface of these things. Of course, you can do your own studies and get much deeper into this. But um, next time, we're going to talk about the other part of uh, that's really connected to the temple, and that's the priest and the priest's role and as you said everything here in this temple is jesus and is to draw us to jesus so anything else shane on on uh the temple you want to you want to add before we get into the priesthood um no I, I had some comments but i think they'll do better on the priesthood segment so let's uh we'll okay go that one. Yeah. i did want to ask you so when when the high priest is here standing before the ark of the covenant um does god speak to him um annually or does god from time to time give them direction to then go out and talk to the people i 
I haven't read that part in the Old Testament. If I have, it's been a while. Or is that in there? So I don't know about the frequency. Um, I do know that he spoke sometimes from the tent. They would just hear the voice coming from the tent. Sometimes they would hear the voice while in the, you know, the high priest would hear his voice while doing the, the work. Um, so God, okay. God still, God still spoke. He was still able to speak to them. And of course they had the, they had the, um, uh, fire and, and smoke, smoke by day, fire by night over the temple, over the tabernacle. And they weren't allowed to leave. Um, it, you know, basically God would, would withdraw. The smoke would disappear. The fire would disappear. And that was the, their, that was their, you know, indication that they could go ahead and start traveling again. Um, it, they wouldn't travel till it disappeared. Once it disappeared, then they would travel. They would set up shop again, you know, and reestablish, rebuild all of it again, you know, and then the a smoke and fire would appear. You know, I just get magic getting up in the morning and it's the fire's gone. It's like, you got to be kidding me. Yep. Time to take it all <laughs> out. <of> the poles. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was it, their I mean, knowledge, like it was their understanding and the symbolism was that God was speaking to them out of the out of the temple, out of the Holy of Holies, uh, whether they were in there or not, that, that he was, he was dwelling with them. There was no mistake about that. Right. And don't you dare (laughs) come closer in or in without, uh, without being properly prepared, which. Right. Well, and it was a, such a profound experience because what religion in the world can you say that their God was truly with them in power? You know, they, they could see him daily. They could see the fire above the temple every day. You, you, you name any major religion and you won't find that anywhere. You know, which is why I think you see so many devoted Jews today because, the, you know, they it was real. I mean, they were the only religion on the earth that had a real, true, living God. You know, and so they that's why you get into this orthodox, you know, stuff where, I mean, nowadays, Jews, modern Jews, some of them would take it to a real extremes. Like they... Like they won't allow anyone to even push a button on an elevator on the Sabbath because they consider that work, mm-hmm. you know? And I mean, there's just all kinds of things that, that, you know, devout Jews will do to try to keep this law. You know, it's all about this law. And if we could just keep this law, then God would come back into our, into the, into our, be with us again. You know, we'd, we'd get the ark back. We'd get the temple back. We'd, you know, and so they just like, they're just struggling so hard to keep this law and they don't realize that the law was completed in Jesus. All of the law points to Jesus and he already came. You know, it's, it's sad, but yet it's also, it's hopeful that, you know, that our God is still there. He's still over the tent in Israel. (laughs) We just don't know he's there, you know? Yeah. It's well, uh, appreciate it. We'll, we'll pick up next time with priesthood, which I think is really, um, well, it's, it's kind of a, well, obviously in LDS culture, it's, it's a thing priesthood is a thing. And so uh, there's a lot of connections between when we start talking about priesthood, but we'll look at the priesthood of the temple and what that was. Uh, please reach out to us, uh, Restore Gospel Podcast at Gmail. Let us know your thoughts, comments in the videos. If you haven't yet, hit, hit the subscribe button and like the channel so more people can hear it. Um, I was going to say, and then I forgot what I was going to say. Any, any, uh, any last words, Shane? Um, no, I don't think so. Okay. All right. Till next time, be kind to each other. We're just walking each other home. Mm-hmm.